welcome to our sixth episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks. Uh, and before I even get into introducing Stephen, I wanted to uh, remind all of you that are attending on Zoom that you can ask Stephen questions, um, and which I'll get to after I ask a few of my own. Um, so there's a Q&A icon at the menu um, at the bottom of the screen. You can just type in your questions and I'll get to them. And for all of you that are joining us on Facebook, first of all, welcome, thank you, thank you. And you can just type your questions into the, uh, the comment stream on Facebook. So um, Stephen, in addition to being our senior scholar, is professor of philosophy at Rockford University. Um, he's also director of the Center of Ethics and Entrepreneurship, also at Rockford uh, University. Um, he has written at least five books, um, Explaining Postmodernism, which uh, and also just wrote the intro um, to our pocket guide to postmodernism. So um, stay tuned for that. Uh, also, um, uh, Nietzsche and the Nazis, Entrepreneurial Living, uh, The Art of Reasoning, and most recently, Liberalism, Pro and Con. Um, so Stephen, again, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jag, for having me. So uh, first of all, the most important question, um, how are you, where are you? And if you would, share with us a little bit of your quarantine story. Hmm. It's a little harrowing. <laughs> well, I'm uh, yeah, back home now in uh, Illinois and easing into summer schedule. The uh, academic life is wonderful for giving one lots of time for reading and writing over the over the summer. My uh, quarantine story uh, has been a bit of a roller coaster. We had to transition from our normal uh, small class in-person teaching to putting everything online, and that was a that was a big shift. With lots of pedagogical issues for uh, for a liberal arts institution uh, that I, that we tried to be. But uh, the other part of it was uh, interesting. I was in Australia for a, a lecture tour, and that was going wonderfully. But uh, toward the tail end of the, uh, the lecture series, so the lecture tour was when things were ramping up on uh, COVID-19 responses and uh, ended up being stuck in Australia. I mean, there are worse places in the world to be stuck for a while. But it was uh, impossible, actually, to get out of the country and back to the U.S. with all of the flight cancellations and reschedules and uh, and so forth. But so I ended up with a couple of weeks extra in Australia, which was uh, quite nice. But eventually made it home, and everything is uh, sort of back to semi-normal now. Um, well, and talking about university, talking about institutions talking about what's happening right now, and we're going to get a little mm. bit to, um, to a, your philosophical perspective on um, COVID and, um, and epidemics. But um, right now, what, you know, my email stream is filled up with, what a lot of people are seeing is a lot of companies, a lot of people saying it's really important that we 
uh, stand with Black Lives Matter to end structural racism, end institutional racism, um, you know, from just a, a, a perspective of, of words and what they mean and the importance of words. What do people mean when they talk about structural ra racism? Where does sort of the origin of that even terminology come from? And, um, and what is, what's your perspective on it? What, what does it mean? Yeah. Well, why don't we start with the racism itself, which is uh, you know, an intellectual and a moral abomination. Uh, it's a kind of reflective of uh, often primitive cognition and in many cases it is a, a problem of self-esteem and and so forth so racism is a kind of collectivism where you group people uh into what you take to be racial groups and and uh, think that there are significant uh normative differences between the racial groups that some are uh, cognitively superior in some important way or morally or culturally superior and sometimes that can spill over into the idea that they should have different political standings and so forth. And all of that is, uh, is wrong and corrupt. Right? We, uh, we are first and foremost individuals. The most important things about us are our own beliefs that we've chosen for ourselves, our, our own goals, our character, our habits. Uh, so uh, there's an obvious uh, you know, dehumanization uh, that's built into any sort of racism that says the first and most important thing about you is going to be some collective group membership and I'm going to treat you on the basis of that. That's, a, that's an injustice. So we are individuals and first and foremost, we should be, be treated as, uh, as, uh, as individuals. So uh, you know, th there are issues, of course, about whether racial categorizations are real or not. I don't think that's a philosophical issue. You know, we all, when we perceive ourselves, we can see differences in hues and sometimes in facial structures, and we wonder about the right way to categorize those things when we're children. And then very quickly, though, I think that becomes a scientific issue to be sorted out by, by people who are geneticists and biologists, right, and so forth. But uh, I think, you know, from a philosophical perspective, it's, you know, it's very clear that in terms of what philosophy offers, that you are a rational being, that you need to think for yourself, you need to figure out the way the world works, you need to work on your character, you should respect other people's rights, all of those things are, are, are general and universal to all, to all human beings. So I, uh, you know, for the, the years that I've thought about this, I don't see any philosophical significance to to, uh, to any sort of uh, you know, racial categorization and so on. You know, the way I like to think about it sometimes is, you know, you know, people, you know, a lot of people will focus on issues of intelligence differences, and uh, you know, say one of the things that should be obvious is that people you know, of all races can be more or less intelligent, uh, and, and that, that there's uh, something suspect in someone who spends a lot of time worrying about racial differences in, uh, in intelligence. But at the same time, you know, I mean, suppose it were, I don't know, you know, take someone we all agree was a super smart guy, you know, like Albert Einstein. You know, suppose scientifically we were able to prove that, you know, Albert Einstein is exactly 2.3 times more intelligent than I, Stephen Hicks, am, or, or, or um, you know, it, 
what would the significance of that be? You know, would that mean he gets to vote two times and I only get to vote one time or somehow uh, uh, you know, he uh, has different virtue character traits, right? And so forth, you know, all that would be, would be completely irrelevant. So now racism, of course, is, uh, uh, this is an, all by way of preamble to your question about all of the terminology surrounding the topic. And some of it is legitimate. Some of it, of course, is, is suspect. And some of it is, uh, is a matter of smuggling in agendas into uh, an already fraught ideological concept and so on. So, you know, it's, uh, it's clear that one kind of racism is just individuals having beliefs about other individuals and wanting to categorize them based on, uh, on racial categorization or differences, right, and, and so forth. So we can talk about racism at an individual level. And I think that's the most important and, and prevalent version of that. But we also know that historically, uh, racial differences have been used uh, uh, among institutions. You know, some uh, businesses have had formal segregation policies that were not forced upon them by legal frameworks, you know, separate rooms for people of different racial categories and so on. Uh, and we also know that there's been legal racism where there are different laws for different members of, of races and so on. So uh, uh, I think there is some legitimacy to the concept of institutional racism. That is to say, if you have an institution, a business institution, a religious institution, right, a, uh, a sporting association, which is a kind of institution, or a government, which is a kind of institution, if they have as part of their formal policy and their, 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 their formal practice, uh, a racism built into it, then that's a, an institutional racism. And uh, it's wrong, right? So it should be something that, uh, uh, that we fight against and, uh, and when we should have cause, common cause with, with people, even if they have different philosophical understandings and solutions and so on, to form strategic alliances for eliminating any form of, of, of racisms that are there. Structural racism, I think, is a more suspect concept because all of my readings of it have come, uh, uh, seen that that concept comes out of certain kinds of sociologies that tend not to see people as individuals. There are lots of historical sociologies going back to Comte in the 19th century and Marx in the 19th century and so forth, that tend to see individuals not as real, but as individuals as formed by the social structures into which they are born. And uh, so those tend to eliminate agency. And exactly what these structures are and how they operate and how they uh, undermine or override or shape us is all quite mysterious. Uh, and I don't think any of that is philosophically true or, or sociologically true. But uh, the people who are now several generations later working within those sociological traditions will use a label like structural racism. And they don't typically mean formal or practices by institutions. They do mean this more shadowy, semi Hegelian, semi-Comptian, semi-Marxist uh, kind of labeling. And I don't think that's a, then a legitimate label. Now, uh, you know, I do have to be open, you know, if there is some 
version of structural racism that means something different than legal racism or uh, formal institutions having a policy or a practice. And uh, I'm open to that argument, but I would just say that I haven't seen it and I've only seen it coming from suspect philosophical traditions. Okay, well, um, just as a follow-up to that question about institutional racism, and so I understand, let's say, laws which treat people from the government, that's, that, that government is an institution, universities are, you know, an institution, um, businesses are an institution, clubs are an institution. Um, uh, what is your perspective from, you know, right now and particularly looking at it through a historical time when we could point to you know severe examples of institutional racism um, segregation um, and uh, you know slavery things like that mm -hmm. um, has it improved i mean it would seem to me that it's improved that um well, and, and I guess my, my uh, it, other question has uh, you know, is capitalism an institution? And as an institution, if it is an institution, um, is it one that, you know, could be argued that is, is, is racist or is it otherwise? Okay, all right, so that's an interesting uh, network of questions there. Uh, you're asking the, the long historical question, have we improved or not? And I think, yeah, absolutely, we have made huge huge improvement over uh, previous centuries and so on. Uh, you know, if you want to go back to the long form, if you go to the 1600s or the 1500s, uh, the idea that uh, you know, different uh, races and different ethnicities and so forth are, some are obviously better and some are obviously worse, that was a universal belief. And it's not until the 1600s, but then especially getting into the 1700s, that you even find just a few individuals challenging the kinds of racial and ethnic prejudices that have been baked into the human condition for for millennia and then in historical time we've made astonishing project progress in eliminating large amounts of individual racism i think uh, all of the surveys that i have seen show that you know the vast majority of americans uh, now and canadians now are are, uh, are are not racist at all uh, you have to look really closely and start to, to get into kind of micro racist types of language to say if you look at this you know particular formulation or this practice by this person that maybe you can see it as uh, as having some hint of racism and so forth so the overt racism the unquestioning assumption uh, unquestioned racism that was pretty much universal to the human conditions is now much, much, much lessened, and in uh, in historical time, it's uh, it's astonishing how quickly that has has happened. The vast majority of legal racisms have been eliminated. Obviously, the the, the biggest of those was the great movement against uh, the the slaveries that uh, incorporated racisms and the great battle against that that started in the late 1700s and uh, accelerated over the course of the 1800s. That's a great human achievement. It's, a, it's amazing. And then the, the ongoing segregation and Jim Crow laws and so forth and the battles against those in the 20th century, those have been largely uh, successful and so on. So I think uh, 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 I'm optimistic right, about 
the, the, the future trend line. And as much as I disagree with many of the contemporary analyses of racism and where it comes from and what the solutions to racism are, I think that trend line will, will continue. Now you mentioned uh, capitalism specifically as a kind of, uh, a kind of institution. Uh, I think, yeah, it is fair to say it's, a, it's an institution. Uh, it's a set of economic and legal principles and, and policies that are, that are put in place. And uh, quite generically, that's a, that's a kind of institution. And capitalism has been one of the great uh, uh, anti-racist forces in history, partly because capitalism comes out of the same set of principles that people should be free to pursue their own lives, to pursue their own dreams uh, as individuals. And uh, that very general set of principles applies to people of all races, all sexes, all ethnicities, all religions, and so forth. So as a matter of philosophical principle, principle right, capitalist freedom and capitalist respect for the individual and the individual's achievements uh, uh, has been applied to racial issues and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and quite successfully so. But then also uh, capitalism uh, builds into it a certain kind of ethos that uh, we should treat people as productive individuals and that we should uh, be willing to deal with them based on their productive performance. Can they get the job done or not? And that uh, ethos that becomes more widespread in capitalist societies obviously uh, uh, puts any sort of racism on the defensive because you know, if I can you know, hire someone who is of a different race, but is clearly going to be a better worker than someone of my own race, the profit motive is going to make me want to hire that person of a different race. And so it's, you know, even if I have some racist attitudes within me, the profit motive is going to help me over, overcome that. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, this is also borne out by the historical record. It has been the, the places around the world. If you look at the historic free ports, Hong Kong, Tangier, Beirut before its disasters, uh, Amsterdam, London, New York, all places where there've been uh, free trade and lots and lots of capitalist or capitalism rather going on or proto-capitalism. Those are the places where you find the most uh, racial mixing and people willing to get along with each other precisely because they're there to do business and the, the desire to do business leads people to set aside any prejudices they, uh, they have. So capitalism has been a, a great anti-racist force. That's a great, great answer. Now, we uh, want to remind everybody, ask questions in uh, the Zoom chat function. Ask them on our Facebook um, stream of this interview. Uh, one of the questions I'm getting repeatedly on um, when I do the uh, Atlas Society uh, Instagram story takeovers, everyone wants to know uh, thoughts on Black Lives Matter. That's, you know, every corporation is, is you know, companies, Uber, Lyft, every, everybody, you know, we, we stand by Black Lives Matter. Uh, what are you, what's your perspective? Uh, sorry, Black Lives Matter, the movement, the phrase? Uh, um, well, I, I guess you could do, do both. Um, the, the movement, the, um, I don't, I, 
and it's a corporation, um, you know, the, the, yeah, it, it is, is just the, um, the insistence, you know, that there is, uh, as a movement, uh, there's structural and, and institutional racism, um, particularly with regards to pol police brutality. What, what are, what are your thoughts or yeah. about the phrase? Well, let me, let me start with the, the movement. Uh, I don't have expertise here, let me say, okay. but I have poked around some on uh, Black Lives Matter's website and so forth and uh, looked at some of the uh, people who are proponents of it. And it strikes me uh, as a similar phenomenon to the Tea Party from about 15 to 20 years ago. It's a, a populist, initially grassroots movement that has a, a significant number of legitimate grievances, but then fairly quickly you have uh, some disparate other people who join the movement and bring other agendas. And when you scale up, you run into some some standard issues. So, the uh, the Tea Party 15 or 20 years ago, I'm getting fuzzy on the on the dates. Right, was uh, initially worried about you know government overreach and government bloat and uh, government intrusion into various people's lives, but fairly quickly it seemed uh, obvious that the Tea Party internally was fighting for its own uh, identity. Who are we really? And there were some very disparate elements from strongly religious conservatives to uh, to uh, other conservatives who were just uh, small government conservatives to others, people who were more libertarian and even a few anarchists hanging out and so forth. And the movement fell apart eventually because uh, you don't have a, a common theme. Now, my sense is that Black Lives Matter is in a similar situation. There is one, uh, uh, one group, and I think this is the, the healthiest part of the Black Lives movement that says, there is a problem with racism and that black people are on the receiving end of more racism than other people are and they do not get a fair deal from various sorts of uh, institutions some of them in the private sector but uh, particularly in the in the government sector and that there are injustices that are real injustices that need to be faced up, faced up to. And uh, so that then the rhetorical force of a phrase like Black Lives Matter is a kind of inclusiveness that I think is, is legitimate, which is to say uh, the point of government is to protect all people equally and to provide justice and peace for all people equally. And that's not happening. And uh, so that then is to say uh, black lives also matter or black matter lives matter too. And uh, to, we need to reform various kinds of government institutions, particularly in a more inclusive direction. Now, there also though is as part of the black lives movement, a contradictory to that segment. And I don't know how many such segments there are but who are bringing to the Black Lives Movement an explicitly exclusionary uh, uh, approach, which is to say that this is a movement for Black people and the philosophy that we are bringing is one that is adversarial to other racial groups that we don't think that we can get along with those other racial groups, 
that we think that they are the cause of our problem. And what this subsection of Black Lives Matter seems more interested in is stoking adversarialism and more interested in blaming other racial groups and perhaps trying to get special privileges for their particular group. Now that's my right, initial sense. And to the extent that Black Lives Matter includes both of those groups, those are in tension with each other. One is explicitly inclusive, the other is explicitly exclusive. The other is saying there is such a thing as justice, there is such a thing as proper function of government, and we want government to live up to these American standards. And uh, they have every right, I think, to insist that government do live up to those standards. The other is explicitly adversarial and is cynical and jaded and seems more interested in undercutting uh, what should be legitimate governmental function. So that's an initial response. Okay, great. Well, um, another term that could help, I, we could have some help in unpacking is um, this the woke culture. Uh, yeah. What does that, what does that mean? Where did it come from? Yeah, that's a, that's a much broader concept. Uh, and it comes out of the, the left politically. Yeah, interestingly, the, the right politically, if we can use these labels, they're obviously left and right problematic. But uh, on the right, there's the concept of the, the red pill, which comes mm -hmm. from the movie uh, uh, The Matrix. So the idea then is that in some sense, one is in a, in a coma, perhaps a chemically induced coma. But if you take a pill, the red pill, then suddenly the coma goes awake you wake up and you see reality as it really is and everything is, uh, is, is quite different. So the left version of this uh, uh, comes out of the, the, the false consciousness tradition to say that the way we are all raised is we are conditioned into a false narrative that says you know, that America is about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and justice and freedom for all and so forth. But that is a, a fake cover story that has been conditioned into all of us. And what we need to do is uh, raise our consciousness, and in some cases get slapped upside the head so that we, uh, we wake up and look around and realize that we really are oppressed. And that's a kind of awakening uh, to see the world as it, as it really is. So woke is a, just a slangy way of saying that, okay, I'm, I'm I've woken up and now I can really see that this childhood naive story about what a wonderful culture we're living in is, is false and that one has become sensitized and, and now buys into the narrative of oppression and exploitation. Wow, Stephen, I hadn't thought of it that way in terms of contrasting that the, the blue pill, red pill versus nah. woke, but now I can kind of see the connections. Um, so one of the things that enters into conversation, particularly, you know, when I talk to people that have a very different perspective than I, you know, I, my family is definitely all on the left, my, you know, the, the temple where I go to services, all very much on the left. And, you know, I'm always looking for opportunities to share, you know, a different um, perspective and also to let people know, you know, hey, guess what? Not everybody agrees. Um, just some feedback. But uh, 
one thing I hear is when we talk about race, uh, and this gets to sort of the metaphysics and the epistemology of, of reality, it's, it's common refrain is, you have your facts, I have my facts, you have your reality, I have my reality. Is it, you know, possible to have a consensus on a shared reality, and are you seeing um, sort of a disintegration, not just of sort of racial harmony, but of um, of this idea that that you know we we do have a reality exists A as A, and we can use our minds to discover it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there's a simplistic way in which uh, that's true, but there is also you know a, a more corrupt way in which I think you're experiencing, and if it's adults who are saying things like that, then I, I suspect that it's more likely the corrupt version of that. I mean, there's one thing of saying, you have your experience and I have my experience. Right. You grew up on the farm, I grew up in the city, or you grew up in the mountains and I grew up next to the sea, right, and so on. So we each have different lived experiences, but what all that means is that it takes more of an effort for us to understand where the other person is, is coming from. Uh, when we start talking about more uh, significant experiences, you know, oftentimes we will say, you know, people who have experienced a trauma of some sort, they were, they were mugged and beaten or they were raped. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, in one sense, it's obviously true to say that if you have not suffered that traumatic experience, your awareness of the badness and the trauma is going to be more distant and more abstracted and so forth. And all of that is, is, uh, is, perfectly, is perfectly fine. But the, the corrupted version is, and this is where we get into philosophical territory uh, fairly quickly, whereas if we want to say, because people have these different experiences, there is no such thing as a common framework that, uh, that we can understand an, an abstract set of principles that we can all come to agree on and, and validate, or that if I have had certain experiences when I was younger, you've had certain experiences when you were younger, that certain things are just closed off to me, entire realms of being and entire realms of value and so forth. So that kind of uh, uh, cognitive relativism is a uh, is a is a corruption. It's a it's a philosophical mistake, and that's going to lead to to problems. Now, one version, of course, is is then going to be uh, racial versions of that. We say, you know, if we start from saying people of different races, either that they are biologically born with different cognitive faculties, and that necessarily means they're going to think about the world in different ways. Well, that is you know, an old-fashioned racism, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, perhaps uh, 30 years ago, I would have said that that's been thoroughly discredited. But it is unfortunately right, making a, a comeback for for some some philosophical reasons. But it also is then going to uh, feed into a kind of uh, moral relativism that says not only do people think differently, but they're going to have different values. And then that people who think differently and have different values, there's no way for them to communicate with each other on anything that's important. And if there's no way for them to communicate uh, with each other, then why bother trying to communicate with each other if it's just going to be a, an exercise in futility? And then of course, if you have a different value framework from mine and those are in conflict with each other, 
then conflict resolution necessarily has to be not through discussion, not by appealing to courts. It necessarily just becomes a matter of physical imposition and power. And so then you're going to have a breakdown of civil society. Now that's a quick and dirty version of going from uh, you know, a strong cognitive relativism to a moral relativism to fighting it out in the streets, but that is uh, in part where we are. So what that would then say is, you know, if we are looking at the news and despairing at the large number of people who don't seem open to saying we should be able to uh, you know, uh, talk about this civilly online, around the water cooler, at temple or, or wherever, uh, on more serious issues, we should be able to take it to the courts and expect that there's going to be objective adjudication procedures in place and then take other issues to, to politics and politics uh, uh, will be uh, you know, a place where we peacefully argue about everything and put it to a vote and then have the argument again four years later that we're going to be committed to the peaceful process and that that seems to be broken down. Uh, that does point up the, uh, the importance of the philosophical framework and we have been living through a major philosophical shift over the course mm -hmm. of the last generation. So speaking of philosophical shifts, um, Stephen Hicks, as many of you know, is the leading expert in uh, America on postmodernism um, as it applies to, to culture, as it applies to art, as it applies to politics and uh, society. Uh, he, I don't take you know, my word for him, Jordan Peterson interviews him all the time and uh, it says this guy is the guy when it comes to understanding it. That's why we're doing our pocket guide to postmodernism, which I had the you know opportunity to uh, edit and look at, and just you know seeing it in that format and thinking about all of the the, the, the forces, the philosophical forces that you laid out, and how they kind of had these consequences. Um, it, it seems to me like right now we are seeing, just like we're seeing an acceleration in so many other uh, areas, an acceleration in technological change, um, an acceleration in uh, transitions to different kinds of, of education. Are, are, you, are you seeing an acceleration in um, the, the consequences or the, the results of postmodernism? Do you see what we're going through right now as connected to mm -hmm. some of the historical postmodernism that you talked about? And then yeah. I'll go to questions. Well, I think, yeah, there, there definitely is acceleration of lots of cultural trends. Uh, and so uh, I think that part is right. I think it's also the case that lots of things lie relatively dormant when there's lots of activity under the surface and then things reach a a tipping point and uh, lots of underground, almost cultural work then spills out and things happen very quickly because of that groundwork having been, been laid. Yes, postmodernism I think is a, is a major contributor to where we are right now. I don't want to uh, overemphasize postmodernism because there are other cultural forces. There are you know, lots of people in the United States and around the world who are you know, now traditional Right, progressives or traditional leftists, you know, they they believe that they are they are being scientific and rational, and they're looking at the evidence, and there really is such a thing as as truth and justice, and 
Uh, equality is an absolute universal value and we should be, we should be fighting for it. And they believe in all of those things, not on postmodernist grounds. And so we have the traditional debates with them about all those issues. But the new kid on the block, actually the not so new kid on the block, uh, uh, new kid on the block in philosophical time is postmodernism. And postmodernism is a, an, a, a, is a skeptical relativistic movement that brings a, a very strong adversarial stance toward all aspects of, uh, of Western civilization and even more broadly against civilization right, itself. So if we go back now to the 60s and 70s and 80s in the last century where the famous intellectual names were people like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and the American Richard Rorty, and those typically are, are, are under the, the label of, uh, of, of postmodernism. But uh, there you have a, uh, you know, a set of views that say reason is not competent to know reality. Uh, so there's a strong skepticism. Objectivity is a failed myth. We are all subjective. And that our subjectivity uh, is not an individualistic one, that we are all born into cultural groups that shape us and mold us and that all of those cultural groups have different traditions and different languages and different frameworks and they're all in conflict with each other and so all we really are going to have is conflict uh, at various uh, at various group levels but uh, we live in a culture that has these uh, these myths about objectivity and truth and freedom and equality and so forth. But really those are just cover stories for powerful people who like to exploit us along various dimensions. So what we need to do is stick it to the man to rise up in various revolutionary fashions and overturn institutions and rip off the, the mask of the oppressor. And that's the only way that we can, uh, we can achieve. Now all of that, is a, you know, a, a cartoon version of postmodernism, right, as I have just presented, but it became enormously influential in the universities uh, and trained a, a whole generation, right, of professors and people who went on to become journalists and lawyers and teachers. And so we have lived through a major cultural shift over the course of the last, last generation. Uh, so yes, uh, the, the fact that things are spilling out into other cultural institutions and into the streets in the, in the form that it is, I do think that postmodernism is a, is a major form of it. Now, I, I want to say that this is, it's not um, kind of classic postmodernism because I think classic postmodernism now, if I can use that label, is a, is a skeptical position. It says, you know, there are no such things as true stories about the world. And I think the immediate reaction, if you think there are no true stories about the world, if instead all we have is, you know, our, our subjective narratives and so on, then your immediate position is to say, well, you know, I can't say that my viewpoint is any better than your viewpoint. Uh, or that my values are any better than anybody else's values. And that seems to push in the direction of a kind of perhaps tolerance or kind of live and let live, you do your own thing and so forth. But what typically happens, and this partly then becomes a psychological point, is that very few people can live with kind of a radical 
relativism and a radical skepticism. They want to have meaning in their life. They want to be committed to something. And so what typically they will have uh, as, a, as the second phase is then to say, okay, uh, maybe my values, I can't give you a good case for why they are true or objective and so forth, but they are my values, damn it. And I want to, uh, to make a difference in the world. And so uh, what postmodernism teaches me is that I should then just make a subjective commitment to what I happen to believe and take it to the streets or take it to whatever forum I have and uh, kind of uh, you know, roll my sleeves up and be prepared for the bare knuckle fight that, uh, that has to be out there. So people will find meaning through a subjective adversarial take it to the streets commitment uh, rather than just say, well, I guess I just have to put up with everybody just believing their own thing. All right, we're going to get to some audience questions, including some that were uh, submitted in advance. Thank you very much. Uh, one, well, there's a couple questions from Phil C. Um, second is essentially views on, uh, it's more about the lockdowns, a uh, view on the proposition that um, more lives and futures uh, are going to be destroyed by the mandatory lockdowns and closings of businesses than um, could or will, will be by the virus itself. Mm. And no, you're not an epidemiologist, but you're probably looking at some numbers and I don't know if you yes. want to take that one. Right. Well, I, I think the, the point of the question, the most important point of the question is to first to recognize that there are trade-offs. And one of the problems we had early on was people saying, all right, here's a health threat it's a, a, and that just blocks out all other considerations and a knee-jerk reaction to do whatever it takes to deal with the, the, the health threat and not to worry at all about civil liberties, not to worry at all about economic consequences and so on. So the point of the question then is I think to say that the threat to civil liberties and the threat to uh, people's economic livelihoods, particularly people who are more, more vulnerable are real and we have to tally those costs. And if we're going to do good public policy, well, we should be doing cost benefit calculations. And as better data comes in and we're a little calmer, uh, we should be uh, basing our public policy on much better cost benefit calculations. So, but you're right, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm not going to do a, a crystal ball uh, gazing here. So, uh, but it strikes me that more than uh, epidemiology, we would need political scientists to tally up the, uh, the, uh, the civil liberties costs. We need a lot of economists to tally up the economic costs. I think we're gonna need also a lot of uh, sociologists and psychologists because uh, there are a lot of psychological depression costs, uh, increased number of suicides, uh, increased number of uh, you know, uh, domestic battery things when you coop people up for extended periods of times and all of those are a real cost. So what the final numbers are going to turn out to be, I have no idea, but that's an important project. All right. Well, getting that definitely trade-offs is important. Having perspective is important. Being, you know, fact-based is important. Not sacrificing others to ourselves or sacrificing ourselves to others is important. Um, perhaps more on uh, purely philosophical this didn't come in for this question, but you know, I mentioned those Instagram takeovers that, that I do, and I can't get to all of the, the questions, but there was one that just, I thought, well, it's right up your alley. 
uh, his handle is Luis Romero. Um, and he asked, is cultural Marxism a real thing? Where are the greatest dangers and how can we fight against it? Maybe Stephen, for you know the rest of us, you could just start with what is cultural Marxism? Oh my goodness, how much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stephen, you've got, we're gonna do this again, but you know, yeah, for a few minutes, because we got a lot of great questions. All right, so the, the quick and dirty version. <laughs> Now, cultural Marxism is a thing. It's a, it's a real phenomenon, and it is a, it is a danger. So the, the quick genealogy would be to say you have classical Marxism in the 1800s, and that's the, the Marxism is formulated primarily by Marx and, and his colleague Friedrich Engels. Fairly quickly, by the end of the 19th century on into the early 20th century, there's lots of smart people who buy into classical Marxism, but they recognize that it has problems, but they are committed to Marxism. And so what they want to do is to introduce some significant changes to Marxism, but nonetheless retain most of the theses of, of Marxism. So I think it's fair to say second, third, fourth generation, you had neo-Marxisms. So Leninism is an example of that. So Marxism, or Marxism, Marxist-Leninism is a neo-Marxism. But then there was a school of thinkers after World War I, uh, but before World War II, who wanted to argue that we need to make some more fundamental changes. There's some elements of the Marxist framework that are right. The, 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 the determinism, the idea that we live in an oppressive society, that capitalism is exploitative, right, and so forth. And all of that is correct, but uh, Marx is, is wrong in making, say, economics fundamental, that there are other cultural forces aside from economics along which we have to understand contemporary society. So we should understand that it's not just economic oppression, but it's also family oppression. It's also racial oppression. It's also sexist oppression and so forth or it's also human beings oppressing and exploiting the environment. So if we're really going to understand how sick our society is, we can't just be monomaniacally focusing on economic issues the way classical Marxism. So it's a generalization on the Marxist themes to say there are many interacting elements of culture, but it's still broadly speaking a, a Marxism. So that, I think, is uh, the most important movement prior to World War II, but then after, after the pause of World War II, and then we get into the 1950s, and we start thinking about everything again, the old left, which had been dominated by classical Marxism, is, is widely seen as problematic. And then we have the shift to the new left that uh, we're all familiar with from the 1960s, and cultural Marxism was probably the most important framework of the new left. But of course, things have moved on. There are still cultural Marxists around, but uh, it's not the only version, and I'm not even sure it's the most important version of leftism anymore. All right, we got a lot of really great questions. Um, and seeing the themes of some of them, I wanted to also remind people that if you are not um, already signed up for our newsletter where we give um, you updates on what is happening in the waterfall uh, section of the Atlas Society site, 
where Stephen um, has curated a lot of really spectacular content. Uh, so be signed up for the newsletter. If you enjoy conversations like this, um, uh, we also have the Atlas Intellectuals, uh, where Stephen also um, makes an appearance when he can. And so that's really for more of a deep dive into, into these ideas. And one of the themes, I believe, of an upcoming uh, waterfall campaign is, is reparations, right? Um, so that, that is one of the questions. What is your perspective, uh, Professor Hicks, on reparations, the claim that current society must uh, repay um, current racial minorities for wrongs done yeah. uh, in the past? Right. My view is uh, absolutely not. Um, reparations comes out of a kind of tradition of, of justice. Justice is absolutely important. Uh, if an individual wrongs another individual, they owe restitution or reparation to that in, in individual. If an institution, a business institution, a government institution uh, uh, engages in a, an injustice, it does owe reparation right and so forth. But reparation needs to be uh, uh, understood in an individualistic framework. It's individuals who are harmed and those harms are not transferable to other individuals uh, right, and so forth. So in this case, we would say, you know, slavery was a great injustice of many individuals and some institutions against many other individuals. I would say the bottom line is that unfortunately, all of the individuals who participated in it are dead. Reparations uh, is, just, is just not possible. The people who suffered from slavery, there is no way to uh, give restitution to, to those individuals. And the people who perpetrated the injustice, who would properly be required to pay the restitution, they're not around right to do so. So the idea though that uh, in some sense that through your group membership, many generations later, you have become a victim. Uh, that is just a rank collectivism of the worst sort. Uh, I don't think there's anybody alive who deserves uh, restitution for slavery because, you know, unless you are actually a slave or a slave, you don't deserve the restitution. But it's also the important to focus on the other side of the equation, that there's a great injustice in making people who did not participate in slavery pay for uh, something that they did not uh, engage in. Uh, now, the, I think the only, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, so I want to say something about statute of limitations, not so much as a, as a legal principle, but as a, as, a, as a moral principle and a psychological health principle. I think there's a good reason why in the legal system they will say, if an injustice has occurred, uh, after a certain number of years have gone by, the healthiest thing to do is just to say, uh, we're going to let it go. Just get it out of your system. Move on, get on with your, get on with your life. So uh, if we have successfully eliminated slavery many, many years ago, and the vast majority of people right now are horrified by the idea of slavery, I don't think there is anybody now who does, uh, you know, actually believes in it in contemporary America. The vast majority of people uh, uh, weren't even around right at the time. Uh, uh, so it's a, it's a, a non-issue. 
I think the only issue that's the appropriate issue is uh, a historical issue to go back and make sure that the historical record is accurate. Uh, uh, you know, naming the names of the people who were the victims, naming the names of the people who were or advocates, and, uh, and, and making sure we learn the historical lesson so that we don't repeat it. Great. We have maybe about 10, 10 more minutes and way more questions than we're, we're going to be able to, uh, to get to. But um, one that has come in here um, is from John Vincent. Well, no rational person would support racism. Would you accept the idea that a person has the right to be racist in support of the idea that a person has the right to hold any idea? So, I mean, do people have the right to be, have horrible ideas? Ah, okay. Well, I would say you don't have the, the cognitive right, you don't have the moral right to hold uh, obviously primitive and repulsive ideas like racist ideas, but I think you do have the legal right to do so. Uh, yeah, just like you have the idea to believe lots of repugnant things like you know, uh, all sorts of re religions that believe women should be second-class citizens, right, or all sorts of uh, you know, economic systems that don't, uh, beliefs like socialism that don't respect entrepreneurs and people who create enormous amounts of wealth. So all of those, I think, are, are atavistic, uh, primitive beliefs, but people have a, a legal right to do so. Now, I think in particular in the case of racism, you know, since it is such an easily uh, confrontable belief, um, I really don't understand why people are afraid of it enough. And it does seem to me that, uh, you know, just in my experience, I can count on you know, one hand the number of racist things I've heard in my circle. You might argue that I live in a certain kind of bubble, but uh, uh, um, the racists are pretty much underground and they don't really have good arguments. So the best way to deal with repugnant false ideas is let them be out there so that we are aware of them and we can counter them. And we can continue in the process of ongoing cultural education by having better arguments uh, and better facts to point out against the, the ideas that we think are false. All right, we're gonna to get to a couple more questions. Um, one, uh, Professor Hicks, both COVID and uh, Black Lives Matter seem an overreach on civil liberties. Um, both seem opposite of the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Uh, how much duty do we own any? Uh, and yeah. I'm sorry, how much duty do we owe? Do we own, I guess. How much duty do we own any? Okay, I think I understood the first part of the question about overreach. Mm -hmm. uh, well. Yes, and I think that that's true. Um, I think there also was underreach, <laughs> right? We, we, uh, many of us underestimated the problem and didn't react quickly enough. Some of us overreacted to the problem, right? And so forth. So I think that's normal anytime there's a, a disaster or some sort of new threat that goes along. So my view, uh, especially with respect to, to COVID in particular is to try to take the last six or eight months as, as much of a learning experience as we can, because there is going to be a, 
COVID-27 or a COVID-36 or whatever that comes along at some point in the future. Uh, and hopefully we'll then have enough individual and institutional memory around at that point to remember what happened last time so we don't underreach or overreach as much the next time. Well, that's a positive um, perspective. Uh, there's another part of the quest question, which I think I can handle. Is what is this group, if I, I guess you mean the Atlas Society, doing uh, to constructively enact our legislators becoming citizens using our, anyway, the Atlas Society is, is a philosophy organization. Um, uh, so there are a lot of groups that are, that are working on policy reforms, legislative reforms, um, justice reforms, uh, but but uh, in the ecosphere of of the liberty space, uh, we have a particular focus on you know philosophy, right, wrong, good, evil. Um, in particular, uh, objectivist philosophy that was um, that was created by Ayn Rand, and our focus is also in um, uh, presenting it creatively, visually, uh, using new technologies with graphic novels and pocket guides and, uh, and, and different social media formats to, um, to engage young people. So, uh, so, you know, not everybody can do every, everything. Um, and I think uh, you know, uh, Adam Smith said it best, you know, the wealth of nation comes from a division of labor and that's, that's what we are doing. Okay. Um, one last question I thought it, it, it touched me uh, in particular was, um, and I'll see well, some of these questions are a little long, so I'll see if I can sum, summarize it. But question was uh, that voicing an opinion that differs even slightly from the consensus can result in termination, cancellation, ostracism. Um, so should one play the game of just kind of going along or taking a principled stand, then the consequences, just as Howard Rourke and John Galt did, toiling and struggling in obscurity. Uh, you know, do we, um, does the context of having a spouse, children, um, or aging parents change that, that calculus? I, I know you hear that a lot from students too. Well, Yes, that's a, it's a, that's a hard question. It's a perennial question. I think the, the, the bottom line is you have to be yourself. You have to know what you stand for, what your values are, why you believe them. And you have to be willing to uh, uh, stick up for yourself and, and fight for yourself. Otherwise, uh, if you sell your soul in, in, in piecemeal ways, you won't like yourself and you're not going to achieve your, your values, your values anyway. But it is a perennial uh, problem that uh, when you live in a society with other people who have different beliefs and different values, some of them will try to put you through hell and impose whatever social costs they can on you to try to get you to sell yourself out and, uh, uh, and to shut down your, your beliefs and your, your values. So how do you, how do you handle that, that problem? Well, I think the a couple of things I would say is one is um, when you enter into social context, you, know, you, you choose your friends carefully, choose your workplace carefully, uh, and um, you know, don't hang out with in any circumstance, you know, people who are 
going to be unfair and impose these kinds of costs upon you. It should be a, a bottom line for rational, civil, decent people to understand that people can have differences of opinions, particularly on complicated issues, and that the way we are going to sort these things out socially is through rational, civil discussion. And if systematically you know you're dealing with people in your social circle, whatever your social is, who are not committed to that, find a way to disengage with, from those people and, uh, and so forth. The other thing is uh, you know, that that's often hard to do, particularly if you are committed to a certain career and in a large institution, for example, or you're a public figure, you don't get to pick and choose right, uh, as, as, as easily. Then I think uh, the important thing is to establish your reputation as a certain kind of person. So if the first thing that people know about you is that you are you're intelligent, you're decent, you are, you are civil, you are good at what you do, uh, and that's their baseline assessment of who you are, when they then realize that you have beliefs that are alien to theirs and perhaps even offensive, uh, they will cut you some slack and they will be more willing to, to go. But if you come across initially just as a, as a jerk who's just uh, announcing weird beliefs, then it's not going to go, go so, so well for you. The other thing I would say is, you know, to the extent that your platform, uh, you know, at work or if you're a public figure uh, is, uh, is, is a public one and other people are watching, that you will have a lot of uh, initially silent support. And when we do have more uh, conformist cultures where there's a lot of pressure on people to tow a party line, that it is the, the more courageous people who are willing to stand up uh, whom we need. We need more of those people to stand up and make a reasoned case for whatever it is that they, they believe in. Otherwise, the, uh, the conformists are just going to prevail and, uh, and, and we end up in an, an authoritarian type of circumstance. But you will, to the extent that you do have a reasoned case and you are making it courageously, you will have a lot more support than you initially think that you have. And you will also encourage other people to, to stand up and that's how you will create a counter movement. Well, that's, that's a beautiful um, answer. And I would also say, you know, to know your values, to know your what's important to you, and then uh, to organize those in terms of like what is the most important to you, what is less important to you, and to strive to to act with integrity, to live your values, um, even though there there may be a kind of short term cost to it. That mm -hmm. the, the long term yield is um, is enormous in terms of. Uh, getting a reputation as somebody who, um, who has integrity, who stands for what they, what they believe. And I guess I would close, um, first of all, by thanking you, Professor Hicks, th thanking you so, so much. That was a real pleasure, great questions. And uh, thanking everyone who, is, um, who joined us. Uh, and also just to, to mention, you know, and this is relevant to the last question, uh, in terms of, you know, un, uh, there are different kinds of people right now in these crises that we have. Um, there are people who are uh, trying to oppose you, um, oppose what you believe in, and um, there are people who are um, 
who are fighting for what you believe in, and there are those that are helping those who are fighting for what you you believe in. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, it's pretty clear what our position is at the Atlas Society, what we are fighting for. If you are not in a position where you feel like you can come out and speak publicly uh, and fight for these ideas that you believe in, um, then help us, you know, support us in, in making that argument and making that fight. Um, and there's a, a variety of ways in which you can do that. Um, I want to thank uh, Stephen and uh, the rest of our team. I want others that are watching this to understand uh, that, that Stephen is don donating 20% uh, of his uh, salary to the Atlas Society, uh, mm -hmm. as is every other member of, of the team. We, we all uh, early on um, took voluntary pay cuts to make sure that we could continue to let this kind of prog programming, our publications, our videos, our social media continue. So if you, uh, if you believe in what we're doing, if you like this interview, if you like the kind of content that, um, that Stephen is um, so meticulously uh, putting together in the waterfall, then continue, consider supporting it, supporting, supporting our work. Uh, we, are, we did not take government bailouts. That is an example of what I consider um, living in uh, consonance with your values. Um, we did not need it um, because we have people like you uh, out there that are supporting our work. So thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Professor Hicks. And we'll see everybody next time. All right. Thanks again.